Welcome to Present Value. Hey, Present Value listeners. I'm Maria Castex, a first-year Johnson MBA student and producer on the Present Value team. I'm pleased to introduce the following episode in which senior producer James Feld talks to Professor Lewis Hyman of Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. They discuss the rise of the gig economy, the history of personal debt, and the myth of Main Street, among other things. It's a timely conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it. I'm also excited to share that this is our first Present Value episode recorded with a remote guest. The Present Value team apologizes for any audio blips that occur during the episode. We're continuing to refine our remote audio recording process, and we look forward to hosting future remote Present Value guests. With that, here's James Feld and Professor Lewis Hyman. I'm your host, James Feld, and I'm excited to speak with Professor Lewis Hyman. Lewis Hyman is a professor in the Labor Relations, Law, and History Department at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations, as well as the director of the Institute for Workplace Studies in New York City. His research focuses on the history of American capitalism, emphasizing the intersection of the government and the market in everyday economic practice. A former Fulbright scholar and McKinsey consultant, Professor Hyman received a Bachelor of Arts degree in History and Mathematics from Columbia University and a PhD in American History from Harvard University. Professor Hyman has written two books on the history of personal debt, Debtor Nation and Borrow. He's also written the book Temp, which presents a history of how American work became so insecure. Professor Hyman, thank you so much for joining us on Present Value. Thanks so much for having me here today. To start, can you share with our listeners what got you interested in studying American capitalism? Well, obviously, capitalism is all around us. And certainly as a historian, capitalism is one of the great questions of our history. Whenever I teach a class, I usually started saying there are two great themes in American history. One is capitalism and the other is democracy. And the intersection of those two sometimes contradictory, sometimes reinforcing processes determines so much of our past. You've previously described the history of American capitalism as the history of below all the way to the top. Can you elaborate on that? Just to give a little history of history there for a second, what we call historiography, there was a movement in the 60s and 70s to really do history from below, to try and write the history of people whose voices had been left out of the story. You know, there had long been histories of financiers and presidents, but not histories of the enslaved or history of women workers or histories of workers, regardless of gender. So one of the things that came out of that was a renewed focus on social history, history from below. But in this process, there was a bit of a disconnect of thinking through how those histories at the bottom connected to the histories at the top, the history basically of power, the history of institutions. And so in the last 15 years, there's been a movement among historians that's sometimes called the new history of capitalism to try and stitch those histories back together. So for me, it became apparent when I was teaching a class a number of years ago, and we were reading histories of U.S. Steel. And we were reading histories of U.S. Steel that were written by labor historians. And we were reading histories of U.S. Steel that were written by business historians. And they had nothing to do with each other. There were no connections. It was almost as if they were talking about two different organizations and histories. And so part of what a lot of 
scholars are trying to do now is reconnect those stories. And that's what I've tried to do in my work, to start to not lose track of the sort of everyday people, but also get a sense of people at the top, people who often have more power, more agency, more choice over the course of events, and trace that through the different levels of society. I'd like to transition to your research on the gig economy. For our listeners, can you define what the gig economy is? Sure. And this is a term that's really come into vogue in the last 10 years. But it's basically one of the easiest ways to define it is what it's not. So we think about what is a normal job? A normal job is something where you have some expectations of security, you have expectations of benefits, an expectation of a full work week, and you have a sort of ongoing relationship with that employer. And in the gig economy, you see all of that gone away. There is no ongoing relationship with the employer, very few legal rights, no expectation of security. And so when we saw, we see in the last 20 years, the emergence of this term, especially with the coming of Uber, it's really become foreground in people's mind, especially as it connects with ideas of automation and displacement of workers through automation. Although in the book Temp, I write a lot about how the story of gig workers has a much longer history and can in fact be traced back through the 1940s and 50s as we think about both the creation of that post-war security as well as its dissolution in the 1970s. What are some common misconceptions that people have about the gig economy? I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting is the way people focus on Uber as the sort of moment when the gig economy comes into existence. And for good and for bad, Uber's become this lightning rod for the ills of our economic lives, for inequality, for job volatility, for the boringness of our jobs. But all this pre-existed Uber, which is only about 10 years old. And in fact, Uber is only possible because of the inequities of the service economy. Less than 1% of workers work in this digital gig economy, but you know about 20% work in retail, right? So this is the reality, that it's not Uber that's causing our inequities, it's Walmart, it's Starbucks, it's all the places where regular people find they can't make ends meet, where they don't get enough hours in their shifts every week, where they're not paid enough and they have very little worker voice and worker power. And so... One of the things I do in the book is say, look, this isn't about technology. This is a story of organizational power. So that we talk about Uber as if it's a tech company. We talk about many other of these sort of on-demand labor platforms like Upwork or Etsy. We talk about these as tech companies. But really, they're solutions to a business problem that's already existing, that there is this labor pool, these people who need work. And that's come into existence slowly over decades. And so the story I tell is the backstory of that through the lens of consultants and temp workers and migrant laborers. How did temporary staffing agencies and management consultants contribute to the rise of the gig economy? Sure. And it came out of my own experience when I was working at McKinsey in my very first day. And I was a teenager I had cut lawns for a number of summers in Baltimore. So as soon as I got whatever that card is that lets you have a real job. I was 15. I said, I am going to work inside in air conditioning. And so I got a job as a temp doing data entry. And it was awful. It was so boring. And needless to say, when I went back to school the following fall, my grades improved immensely, trying to avoid that life. 
Now, fast forward a couple, like a decade and a half, and I show up my very first day at McKinsey in this big, shiny conference room, my fancy suit, and I realize, oh my God, I'm another kind of temp. I'm paid much more, but it is the same kind of thing. And so I started to think about what is similar and different about these worlds and what their experiences are. And you can see that in the post-war as well. The histories of McKinsey and manpower, they emerge as ways to support this post-war corporation's quest for growth, for security. McKinsey is instrumental in sort of the expansion of the multi-divisional corporation after the 1920s. You know, it's not easy to run a corporation, as I'm sure you have learned at your MBA program. And you need some help. And to transition from a more 19th century version of the corporation into the mid-20th required a lot of labor. And so McKinsey was there to help. Similarly, there was a broad demand for job security. So when you got sick as a secretary or as a line worker, the temp agencies could fill your job while you had your sick leave, which was a new idea. Or you could go on vacation, which was a new idea. And so in many ways, these kinds of systems at that point shored up job security. They shored up and promoted ways of running the corporation in new ways. And that's the story of McKinsey and manpower in the post-war. And then I show how this transitioned. How did the rise of the gig economy impact business operations? In the book, I really foreground the importance of ideas, especially the ideas of business people. So when we hear about shareholder value, when we hear about the sort of way in which the corporation has become leaner and meaner, you know, it's this strange way it's attributed to economists. But if you actually read the business literature of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, you very rarely see economists mentioned. Whereas intellectuals like Alvin Toffler, business gurus like that, as well as consultants are everywhere. You know, these are the people that are paid millions of dollars, whether it's McKinsey or BCG or PricewaterhouseCoopers, to remake the corporation. And what they did was they said, look, Let's get smaller. Let's get more focused. And this is the aftermath of the 1960s. In the 1960s, the young people, of course, were hippieing out. They were having a good time, but the adults were experiencing new kinds of financial innovation, like the leverage buyout that allowed for new kinds of the corporation, the, the conglomerate, to really expand. Well, these conglomerates, it turned out, were built on a house of cards. They claimed to be these corporations more efficient through diversification, and but it turned out it was a sham. And that all came crashing down around 1969. And in the aftermath, consultants were hired to, and this encompassed something like 90% of the S&P 500. So just like all the biggest corporations are doing this. In the aftermath, these consultants have to come up with a way to rethink the corporation. So they reorganize Citibank, they reorganize General Electric, they reorganize everything. And it's out of that that comes a new idea of this small, flexible workforce. And over the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we see this expand first in industrial settings and then in office settings. And it's tied to ideas of how do we protect our core workforce from those who don't deserve security. And those are fundamentally the roots of the gig economy, people who are not seen as deserving of security. And it started with people in the margins in the 1970s and 80s, and now it encompasses almost all of us. That kind of income inequality, but more importantly, in some levels, income volatility is just part of our everyday life. 
For our listeners, can you elaborate on the difference between income inequality and income volatility? Additionally, how are they related to the rise of the gig economy? So this is really important. The gig economy did not create income volatility. The gig economy is a consequence of income volatility. So income volatility comes out of the way in which scheduling works within the service economy. So if you're working a job slinging coffee, well, they don't want to give you enough hours to qualify as a full-time worker because then all kinds of legal rights kick in as well as benefits become much more expensive. But at the same time, they want to make sure that there's enough workers to cover the demands of the consumers at that coffee shop. So what they do is they cap your hours and they don't tell you week to week which hours you're working exactly. In fact, you may not know which shifts you're going to work. They want you to be available and flexible, but it doesn't work the other way around. And so this pool of people who have very volatile incomes is available and looking for alternatives to fill out their schedule because it makes it very hard to find a second job to go to school, to do childcare, if you do not have that sense of stability. So volatility means, you know, we know about there's, there's rich people and poor people. What we don't know is that the poor people and even the middle class, middle people, have very different experiences of their income. So if you're in the top 20%, you probably have a salaried professional job where you get the same paycheck every two weeks or every month or something along those lines, and you can plan for your future. Well, a few years ago, J.P. Morgan Chase, which as you know, is not a Bolshevik organization, they are a large banking concern. They found that in fact, for a little over half, about 55% of middle income people, so middle of the income distribution, they have 30% fluctuations in their incomes every month. And 85%, almost all of that fluctuation is within a job. So that people work the same job and they have a 30% fluctuation in their incomes. Wow, that is just absolutely shocking. Try to plan paying your bills, try to plan your life around that. And it goes up to about 75% of people in the lower quintile. This is a very different experience than people had in the post-war. And it's important to understand that this is why there is a labor pool of people available who are looking to make a little extra money on the side. And that's where the Ubers of the world, the Etsy's of the world, the Upworks of the world come in to the need for them within this volatile economy. So the gig economy doesn't cause volatility. The gig economy is possible because of volatility. And so the question is, how do we turn that from a world that is being foisted on some people into a world where it's an opportunity. And then for lots of people, about half, according to many surveys, of people who have this kind of flexible work as consultants, as gig workers, they love it. They love it. It's the best. So the question is, how do we help the rest of those people make a good living and find some autonomy and security within this rather than just feeling buffeted by forces beyond their control? There's the same range of experiences within the gig economy as there is in traditional work. How can businesses or government policies support workers in the gig economy? Well, I mean, we're seeing it in this election cycle, right? Yang is talking about the basic income. Other people are talking about the expansion of Medicare for all. So how do we take that, create a floor for workers? As Andy Stern, the former head of the SEIU said a few years ago, 
how do we create raise the floor for everybody so that we have benefits so you don't have to have a job to have healthcare? How do we make sure that everybody has at least a minimum amount of money to get by? And it's interesting because it's both a very progressive idea. You know, you can think of this as the in one way as the expansion of the welfare state, but it's also a very conservative idea. The idea is saying, look, we're going to just help everybody and we're going to see what's possible so that you can go be an entrepreneur so that when you finish your MBA, you're not locked into working for a big corporation. In fact, you could skate by for a while and have a brand new idea. And so the hope there among conservative thinkers on this is that it could unleash all kinds of new entrepreneurship. Because most people aren't going to be entrepreneurs, but this is one of the upsides of capitalism. You can have a few people who are able to create opportunities for many other people. So this is one of the ideas. And, and so in that way, we shouldn't think of it as benefits, but as investments. So instead of everyone becoming a welfare state recipient, we're actually just investing in each other. So that's one way of thinking about it. And there's various ways to pay for this from taxes on the extremely wealthy to giving everyone an equal share when there's an IPO, not an equal share, but some fraction of every IPO, you know, ways to think about how do we couple productivity growth with prosperity for everybody, which right now it's, it's very, very decoupled that productivity growth is going to the few at the top. So it's an interesting time to think about these issues. Can you elaborate on how productivity growth has been decoupled from prosperity? This is a very deep question. And in fact, it's a huge source of debates. We call economists and they call it the productivity paradox that somehow, even as productivity has been rising, wages have stagnated. And this shouldn't be so in a competitive market. As you remember from your microeconomics class, wages are supposed to be equal to the marginal productivity of labor. And sorry if I traumatized all the listeners there. Well, then why isn't it rising? And you know, there's a lot of different arguments. One argument is that it's the lack of unions, the lack of worker power. So they can't actually demand their share of this. Another idea is that people are actually not as worthwhile. That actually it's capital that's become more valuable and that people are worth less or that, in fact, people at the very top are more productive given our economy. So that's why the money is going to them. And so this is a question of like, who do you, what do you think about? Who should get the pay? So if you replace an entire steno pool with one word processing machine, who should get the money from that? And that's a political question as much as that's an economic question. How do we think about the claim that all of us have on that productivity gain as we are one society with one shared fate? And I think this goes back to that question about democracy and capitalism. I'd like to transition to your research on the history of personal debt and how consumer finance has changed. To start, can you explain what personal finance and lending looked like at the beginning of the 20th century? So what's interesting to me is the, when I was writing my dissertation in the early 21st century, was comparing it with the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And in that moment, when I was writing my dissertation in 2003, the big money was being made by small loans to consumers, credit cards, car loans, etc. Whereas in the late 19th century, the big money was being made by investing in steel and in coal and in railroads. And nobody was making money by lending to the working class. And so for me, the question was, how do loans to workers become 
more profitable, become an engine of profit in our economy relative to investment in business itself. Because the, the promise of capitalism is that we take our profits and reinvest in businesses which create more jobs, right? And better jobs. But what had happened by the late 20th century was the profits were being reinvested in loans to workers to consume more, which doesn't have the same kind of virtuous cycle. And so when you look at finance in the early 20th century, it's, it's actually illegal to lend to consumers. There's all kinds of laws intended to protect consumers from loan sharks, which creates a artificially low rate of interest so that no one could legally profitably lend to consumers. It wasn't easy to collect debts then. There wasn't FICO scores. It was hard to figure out who to lend to. And it was hard to collect those debts on the other side because people didn't have social security numbers. They didn't have fixed addresses. Their spellings and their names changed all the time. And so the beginning of the story is with the story of loan sharking and the end of loan sharking. And then the rise of installment credit, the rise of how business begins to discover how to invest in consumer debt profitably. And part of that story is the story of the government, especially in the 1930s, when the Federal Housing Administration sets up ways not just to lend money for housing, but also to lend money for home improvements. And these small loans for home improvements actually teach banks like Citibank, then called National Citibank and Bank of America, how to lend small amounts profitably. And so I trace that story through the 20th century thinking about the ways in which businesses and government interact to create a new kind of debt regime that brings us all the way to 2008. During the 20th century, which new tools were created that helped expand the use of credit? Yeah, so the big turns were in the 1930s when the government acts as a market maker. So when we learn about the federal loans in school or the FHA, and we all vaguely recall some test from a U.S. history class with all those letters, we think of it as the government lending the money. But what actually happened in the 1930s was that the government created insurance pools where they could create standards and say, look, if you meet these standards for lending to home buyers, your mortgage will be insured. And it'll be insured because you're going to pay a nickel out of every, you know, so amount of money into this pool of money and you'll be compensated out of it. And in turn, because these mortgages seemed insured, they seemed less risky, you could have big banks buy them up. Big banks, big insurance companies that were in the 1930s, of course, the Great Depression, struggling for places to invest, right? Everything seemed so risky. They were very nervous. And so the government acted as a market maker. They acted as an organizer of private insurance, but not actually lending the money themselves. And what's interesting to me is this is a very different story than we hear about the New Deal. We hear the New Deal as Keynesian spending or big government. And in fact, this is actually not big government, but clever government. Government that uses the mechanisms of markets to create different outcomes than markets would themselves. And then the next big turn is, of course, in the late 1960s, when the government creates mortgage-backed securities to invest in cities that had been systematically disinvested in since the 1930s because of racist policies. So what's interesting is that the racist policies that are a consequence of the 1930s, they double down on finance as a way to solve those 
those racist financial policies. And again, nothing really helps the inner cities of America. But what does happen is this new securitization comes into being, again, through the interaction of Wall Street and Washington. And this sets the stage for the financialization of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, in which more and more things become securitized. As we all know, the consequences of that, where risk is mismeasured through the 90s and consumers get leverage, and it just is a big whooshing sound as money is sucked out of profitable business into consumer debt. And in a lot of ways, that, that expansion is massed until 2008. So that's the story. And I finished the dissertation in 2007, right on the cusp of the Great Recession. So it was, it was a curious time to be working on such issues. Have there been meaningful changes in the provision of consumer credit since the 2008 financial crisis? Yeah, it went down for a hot second and it went right back up. So there, in the aftermath of 2008, is, as the amounts loan dipped, there were all these journalists calling me being like, oh no, millennials will not borrow. It's a great cultural shift. They're thrifty. And I'm like, no, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that banks are afraid to lend. And of course, that is what happened. Now we're at a far greater level than we see pre-recession. And we've also seen the rise in student debt as well. So there were all kinds of provisions to try to prevent the excess of lending. But the fundamental weaknesses in terms of the credit rating agencies has not been solved at all. And nearly all experts agree that part of the problem was in the rating of those bonds. And that hasn't been solved at all. So I think we should just wait for the next bubble to be popped. And we should see that, you know, the next few years, because we are once again at the end of the business cycle. I understand that many lending institutions don't recognize income from the gig economy as stable when making lending decisions. Do you see this system changing or persisting in the future? I mean, I think they will not until the next downturn in the economy. And then what's going to happen, I think, whenever the down, I mean, unless this really is unlike every single other economic expansion in the history of capitalism, eventually there will be a recession. And during that recession, we'll see probably what we have seen in recession since 1991, which is a jobless recovery, which means that two things happen. One, corporations shed jobs and they never hire people back. They just replace them with machines or by making people work harder within those companies or by outsourcing through to gig economy and contract labor, which is much easier to hire and fire. And so I think in that if there is a broad shift as people begin to work in that space, financial organizations will have to lend to gig workers because that's where the customers are. So I think when we see, if not in the next recession, certainly the following recession, this shift in the organization of work, it's going to really be something. Because right now, it's curious how you measure it, right? About 10% of people are full-time contingent workers, which is how the Bureau of Labor Statistics likes to call the gig economy. And that encompasses all kinds of people, contract workers for contract programmers for Google. It encompasses logistics workers who work in Amazon warehouses or deliver for Grubhub. It also includes independent consultants in a lot of ways. So people disagree and they have big arguments and conferences over how to measure it. But really the story is about 1% of the workforce works in the digital on-demand economy about 10% works full-time in this way, and about 30 to 40% moonlight. They supplement their income. So when their main jobs go away in the next recession, they'll turn to this. And 
it's interesting to think about what is your market if you are a lender? And they're going to have to look to workers where they are to make money. So it's going to be a big shift in the coming years as we think about what is real work? How do we draw the line between independent contractor and employee? And who deserves our respect and our protection in this economy? And so it'll be interesting to see that in the years to come. Some observers advocate a federal job guarantee in order to mitigate the jobless recovery phenomenon. Do you find this to be a viable solution? I'm in favor of market solutions generally. I think a federal job guarantee, and what would that look like? Work camps for everybody. I mean, I think it's nice to create alternatives for people. I can imagine the creation of sort of a green core, similar to the Civilian Conservation Corps in the 1930s to do climate recovery and mitigation and restoration, which I think is really important. But I don't think you can guarantee jobs. I think what you can do is guarantee opportunities and support workers in their voice and support worker organizations and their demands for recognition. And that's something we see different now. So, you know, a lot of people are very negative about this economy, but I do think that it speaks to a few different things are going on that make me optimistic, that it is the return in some sense of autonomy to our jobs. We had traded off autonomy for golden handcuffs, whether you worked on an assembly line or an office job, you know, no human wants to do paperwork all day. No human wants to turn a wrench eight hours a day. There's always something better. And there's something very exciting about the idea of being able to choose your own work and trying to find your own work, as long as that there's that minimum floor. So on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, in the logistical capitalism under which we live right now, where distribution of goods is really driving the economy, whether that's e-commerce or supply chain management or these other kinds of things, you know, this has been a long story since the 1970s, first the rise of Walmart, then Amazon. But unlike Walmart, Amazon workers are actually making headway. They got the fight for 15. They're organizing. They've got a great momentum to them because those warehouses are fixed in place and can be organized. Just like the auto plants in the 1930s that gave us the good auto jobs at the post-war. You couldn't do that in retail. You couldn't do that at Walmart. So I think there's a lot of positive things we're seeing in this where we're getting growth in new areas and we're also seeing workers having more power. And for me, this is what it's all about. It's about organizing as we grow. It's not about stopping progress, but making sure that progress is for everyone. I'd like to transition to your work surrounding the myth of Main Street based on an op-ed you wrote for the New York Times in 2017. For our listeners, can you elaborate on what you mean by the myth of Main Street? So Main Street has always been this idealized part of the American economy, but it's always in reality been at the margins. As we think about small town life in the 19th and early 20th centuries, this isn't where we see the big economic growth happening. And certainly by the early 20th century, we see the rise of chain stores. The, it's hard to think of it as nefarious now, but the great A&P, Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, was the Walmart of its day and was seen as a way to suck out the profits of small towns into faraway capital cities. And we also know that historically cities have been great engines of growth, right? That's where you have thick labor markets. You can really specialize into different areas. The New Geography of Jobs is an amazing book that documents this process. 
But we also know that cities right now are incredibly overpriced. And there's been a lot of great research coming out about how the housing market is actually slowing overall economic growth because companies have to devote so much of their resources to compensating their workers to live in San Francisco, to live in New York City. And a lot of that job, that work, doesn't need to actually be co-located or it can be done online. And for me, this is what's exciting about our economy now. It's the platform economy. And the platform economy is really a break with the history of capitalism because for the longest time, if you wanted access to capital, if you wanted access to talent, if you wanted access to markets and to advertising and consumers and all the like, you had to be part of a big corporation. That's where all the resources were. And now you don't need that anymore. You can sell globally, you can source globally, you can work globally through platforms. And this enables people to really live wherever they want. And so one of the challenges for today is thinking about how to reconnect Main Street with the urban economies. And right, not everything can be sent to Main Street, but a lot of things can. And we're already seeing that on the platform Etsy. So Etsy is often dismissed because of sexism. So whereas people wring their hands over Uber, they're like, oh, Etsy's a place for cute doilies. But actually, 700,000 people, last I checked, made their full-time living on Etsy. And nearly all, about 85% are women, nearly all are rural. And they are making this living selling to urban consumers. And this is kind of amazing. We should be supporting these kinds of micro businesses and this transition to a platform economy that looks much more like autonomy than despotism. And I think when we talk about the platform economy, people think always of Uber. Uber's only one version of this. There's lots of versions where the people who work on these platforms are price setters, not price takers, which as you know, is, is a very different kind of experience. It's also the case that we can imagine worker-owned platform cooperatives, which have a long history in American rural life, thinking about Sunkist as an agricultural cooperative. So thinking about those as an alternative, there's, there's a lot of ways in which the platforms could help reconnect Main Street America with the rest of the economy in ways that matters not just for capitalism, but of course, for democracy. So much of the anger that's coming out of rural and small town America right now is that inequality. So any way we could do to support the growth of that, I think, will be essential to restitching our political life together. One project you're involved with is the Digital Countryside Initiative, which helps provide opportunities for individuals in small towns. Can you elaborate more on this initiative? So this is a plan that's underway right now. We're still trying to get it off the ground to actually do that, to partner with small town libraries in upstate New York, to create a website that helps people find out where they can work with the skills they already have. We have a lot of conversations right now about upskilling and reskilling, but the truth of the matter is that most people don't want to learn how to be computer programmers. And if the answer to inequality is everyone becomes a computer programmer, well, I think we should probably hit the barricades because I don't want to do that. I'm, most people don't want to do that. And a lot of people aren't capable of doing that. I mean, that's part of the problem that the post-war economy delivered good jobs for average people. And right now, we only deliver good jobs for 
honestly, very elite people, very exclusive, very rare people, the 1%, the 2%, the 5%. And that in the long run is not a good way to keep a society stable. So one of the things we do know is that speaking English, knowing American customs is actually a skill set. And this is something that rural Americans know how to do. And they know how to do lots of other things. So the trick with the digital countryside is to help them understand how they are valuable already with the skills that they already have. Selling custom goods on Etsy or working as a receptionist on Upwork. You can work as a receptionist on Upwork for $25, $30 an hour remotely. That's good money for a lot of people. So I think that's one of the things we have to consider going forward and really incentivize corporations to rethink their workforce practices along these lines. Regarding the revised USMCA trade agreement, do you foresee positive impacts for labor and Main Street? Look, I believe in trade. I mean, we know the question, the benefits of trade are net positive. The question is, who do those net positives go to? Right. And I think we've seen how cheap goods make a certain kind of living standard possible, even as wages stagnate. So I think that's it's important to have trade. And for me, it's not just about American workers. It's also about Mexican workers and Canadian workers and Chinese workers. A sense that only Americans matter is a dangerous idea. We're all in this together. And there's some things that other workforces should be doing better. And the question is, how do we take advantage and support American workers in this transition. So anything that enables that kind of trade, I think is good. And you know, I think that we need to make sure that we support communities in transition during this process. But the idea that we're gonna bring back a Chevy plant, you know, and that's gonna support the growth of the economy is just ludicrous. That's just playing to the nostalgia of people who don't understand where the economic growth is really happening for a very long time. We've already been in a service economy, and that's where we're going to continue to be. And that's where the growth will, will also be. Now, if they want to bring back manufacturing, the best thing they could do would be to invest in basic science to create new technologies, new plants. We do know that the kinds of manufacturing is should be done in the U.S. is cutting-edge technology. So just up the street in Corning, they have manufacturing right next to making Gorilla Glass, new kinds of glass right next to the scientists that are developing those next-gen materials. And it's because you need this fast process of iteration and also control of intellectual property. But for everything else, it really should be globalized in the supply chain. I'd like to transition to the topic of retail stores and their impact on the communities they serve. In 2015, you wrote an article for Slate called Why the CVS Burned. In the article, you write about the Baltimore riots in the wake of Freddie Gray's death and why, during the riots, a CVS store was set on fire. In the article, you state that a reason why the protesters burned the store down was that they did not experience it as their own. Can you elaborate on that? So a a big part of my work is thinking about the intersection of race and capitalism in American history. In my classes, I teach that. In my research, I write that. So when you write about the history of debt, You really can't understand it unless you see it through the lens of race and gender. These are essential categories of power in American democracy and in American capitalism. I'm from Baltimore originally, and so during the aftermath of Freddie Gray's death and the uprising, as people call it now, after that occurred, I found myself in lots of conversations with white people 
talking about, well, why did they burn their own store? And this is the conversation that white people would have about black people in, in Baltimore. And one of the things I did in that piece was try to explain that for African-Americans in Baltimore, that CVS was not their store. That CVS was a place that was owned by a distant corporation. It was a place maybe where they couldn't get a job. It was a place where every time they entered, they were watched and surveilled. It was a place where they had to confront the lack of their insurance as they had to pay out of pocket for lots of expensive medicine. And so this is just one case of that. It's also true in so many retail institutions in urban America, especially in poor African-American communities, where they are disconnected from the market in some ways, or they don't have access in terms of the high costs of groceries, low quality of groceries or financial services, but also in ways in which they're connected in this very different way than white people in the suburbs or even white people in the cities. You know, I don't have these experiences when I go to a CVS. I just walk in, I give them my, I say, I need this and they give it to me and it's not a problem. Nobody looks at me twice. And this is just a very different experience African-Americans have in retail. And anyway, in the aftermath of that, I thought it was a useful piece to give a historical perspective on because it helped explain the sort of different experience, the, the, the Black experience in, in Baltimore to lots of whites. I got a lot of emails and letters from white people being like, oh, now I get it. I'm like, good. I'm glad you get it now. But let's move on and let's try to think about this, not just in terms of retail, but policing and all the other ways that Black people experience, they don't experience a liberal market economy, frankly. They don't experience democracy. They don't experience capitalism. And so this is, the, this is the, one of the important threads in African-American history. In what other ways have retailers reached out to marginalized groups outside of physical stores? Well, this is, it's interesting because I think last year Sears was shutting down and I wrote this Twitter thread about the history of Sears and the way in which the Sears catalog reached out to black consumers as a way to evade white control of retail stores, you know, whether in terms of debt or in terms of what, literally what black people were allowed to buy. And this is in the 1890s. But in response to that, I got a lot of emails and people in the thread from black people saying, well, that's how I use Amazon now. I go and I use Amazon so I don't get trailed through a store by a guard so I don't get hassled by the clerks. And of course, not just black people, but trans people and other people who feel somehow out of step with what is considered normal in their community or certainly from the perspective of the retailer. And so there's a way in which e-commerce allows that kind of freedom to shop and not have to deal. And this was true when W.B. Du Bois was writing about the Sears catalog at the turn of the 20th century, and it's, it's true today that it is just very frustrating to be a Black consumer. And yet, Black people have lots of money to spend, so it's a curious paradox of market failure. Along with e-commerce, are there other tools that companies are using to engage marginalized groups? Well, of course, today we have laws that sensibly prevent this from occurring. It's not, we don't live under a Jim Crow regime. But it still happens informally, and certainly if you Talk to nearly any black person, they will tell you about their own experiences of this. And of course, not every, nearly very few white people have this experience. But it is something about e-commerce and the, honestly, the gig economy that has created opportunities for black people not have to deal with white people and their prejudices or other people just discriminating against 
black people. So certainly one of the, at least at first, one of the promises of Uber was that black people in New York could get a taxi cab at night, which had not historically been the case. And with Amazon, it's the same kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of ways in which e-commerce allows for more access for subpopulations that are discriminated against or just specialty niches. It blurs the boundary between niche marketing and commerce in this way. And so I think this is one of the interesting questions about how African-Americans are experiencing this gig economy, this digital economy quite differently than white people, especially white people that complain about it, who say, oh, we should just have our store, we should just have our taxis. It's like, well, you never had to deal with all this. So I, I guess I get a little frustrated with white people, particularly white liberals that take that tack. At the top of the episode, you referenced the importance of two stories, one of capitalism and one of democracy. You mentioned that the two have at times been in conflict and at other times reinforced each other. What is the state of the relationship between capitalism and democracy, both in the United States and around the world? So I think right now capitalism, which is capitalism is a great engine for growth and a great engine for inequality. Right. And so I think this is the question of our age. You know, how do we maintain growth? And a growth of a particular kind, a growth that brings the next billion out of poverty. I mean, you know, it's all well and good to talk about a zero growth economy, but when billions of people around the world are still very, very poor, fewer than they were 20 years ago because of capitalism. But it's also a capitalism that has to be not zero growth, but certainly zero carbon growth or negative carbon growth. So this is, this is one of the crucial issues. And the question is, can democracy bring that about? You know, are we able to exert the political power to check that growth of carbon. And it's not clear that we can, right? I mean, it's, and so this is the big question of our age, the China versus the US versus Europe about that. So there's that, that aspect. The other aspect, of course, is that incomes continue to stagnate, that we feel more unequal. And as people feel more unequal, they feel left out, they become angrier. They become, begin to blame people. It's certainly not undocumented migrant laborers that are making American workers have wage stagnant wages. But that's who's being blamed for this. And that's an easy and popular narrative. So if you want to fix that, the best thing to do is to think about how we can jumpstart growth. We can jumpstart growth in new industries that will hire regular folks that will provide equitable wages. And that's the question. You know, how do we do that? That should be the question, I think, for business students who are thinking about the future, balancing these issues of growth and equity in the future. And it's hard. It's easier to take the low road than the high road, but the high road can be profitable too. And the greatest era of our prosperity was that post-war moment when wages were going through the roof and we somehow created a virtuous cycle. And so I think one of the challenges for scholars and for business people and for policymakers is to really have that conversation to look back and think about, well, how do we finance new industries? How do we finance new industries that require workers in new ways? And that's going to be the challenge for the digital economy and for the 21st century in general. To close out our conversation, can you share with our listeners some of the upcoming projects you're working on? Well, right now, I'm mostly working on a project called My Son. I'm on parental leave, but I would like to, in the next year or two, write a book on carbon abolitionism and think about what we can learn from the end of slavery to think about the end of carbon. So if the great moral challenge of the 19th century to capitalism was slavery, 
the great moral challenge of today is climate. And slavery was, you know, the, the largest asset class, to put it brutally and horribly, the largest asset class in America, even the Civil War, was enslaved people. And all of our major banks and insurance companies issued mortgages and insurance contracts on enslaved people. And, you know, our biggest, many of our biggest industries, like textiles, relied on slave-produced commodities. And yet it ended. It ended over the course of about five years. And the story there is often that sort of antebellum stories like, oh my God, look in horror, how could capitalism be part of this? But part of the story should also be it ended. And actually capitalism survived. And in fact, for good and for bad, the financiers and industrialists were not punished. They didn't go to jail. Their assets survived. And, you know, I'm sure you and me and all your listeners think that is bad. But I think we should also recognize the fact that it did happen, that somehow capitalism moved from this incredibly immoral foundation to, if not a moral one, certainly we would all agree, a better one. And so I think this is the question as we think about climate in the 21st century. How do we become carbon abolitionists that instead of carbon gradualists in a way? How do we end carbon now and save the planet and in fact save capitalism from itself to create opportunities for economic growth? to put it on a more sustainable footing. Sustainability is not just profit, but the existence of us all. So that's the project I'm thinking about doing and trying to take lessons from that transition for today. Where can listeners go to learn more about your work? Well, I have my books that you can read. I also just released a podcast of my own on Spotify and iTunes with PayPal on the history of e-commerce. I also have a podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify on the history of capitalism with Ed Baptist. And I write stuff. So, you know, just keep an eye out in the New York Times and other places when I write things. And of course, I teach classes here at Cornell University. So please enroll in those. Can folks follow you on Twitter? Oh, absolutely. Of course. Twitter at Lewis Hyman, L-O-U-I-S-H-Y-M-A-N, and my website, lewishyman.com. Perfect. Well, Professor Hyman, Thank you for speaking with us today at Present Value. I really enjoyed our conversation and thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Truly a delight. Thank you so much. The Present Value podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Jack Moriarty, Greg Wool, Eric Joe, and Maria Castex from the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, James Feld. Our engineer was Sam Lubowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.